Exodus 13, this is God's Word. Written a long time ago, but God wrote it with you in mind today. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time... Sorry, and when in time to come, your son asks you... What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's ask God's mercy. O Lord, we have a pillar of light, fire described in the text so the people can see. May that task be continued today, not with a pillar of fire, but with your spirit, that we, your people, may see. Oh God, may we see you and love you for Christ's sake. Amen. Simple question, complicated answer. How long does it take to get to know somebody? You ever thought about that? Like, how long does it take to get to know somebody? I mean, we have that kind of initial thing where our, we have a hunch, you know, where you kind of read somebody instantly and you're like, I like that guy or I really don't like that guy. He creeps me out. And that's usually formed in like half a second. For whatever reason, just the way God has made us, we make that gut judgment call. Weirdly enough, again, how he's made us, it's usually right. Sometimes it's wrong. And you think, okay, well, maybe it takes a second. Or maybe with an acquaintance, it might take a couple of hours of spending time together. Maybe you do a, you know, a project together or somebody comes over and helps you with a house or something and you get to know them. Maybe for a deep friend, you could say, it, it took us years. But again, you think about it, maybe even with your spouse, how long does it take to really get to know somebody? And I mean really know them well. You ever think about that kind of process, even of just what it's like? That initial stage where you just share information, it's just information sharing. (laughs) You need to know these facts about me, and I need to know these facts about you so we can kind of sort out, are we thinking about the world the same way? And I guess as time passes and friendship continues and relationship grows, those facts become assumptions and friendships develop. 
For those those of us that don't tend to kind of think intentionally about those kind of processes, that's a large part of what's happening in Exodus chapter 13. That question again of how long does it take to get to know someone? What do you have to what do you have to know? What has to happen? How do you know someone? Is largely what's taking place here. Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. That is a very long time. Now, granted, they lived a long time then, longer than now. But that's a long time to listen to the stories of the false gods of Egypt. That's a long time to to be taught to follow the false gods of Egypt. It's a long time to live in the culture of Egypt, to, to exist in their ethics, to exist in their music, to exist just in their food and all that makes Egypt, Egypt. It's a long time not to forget the Lord. I mean, honestly, be, be honest, think about yourself. Think about how long it takes you to forget about God. 400 years. I mean, that, that, that is a spectacularly long time. And I'll be honest, had I been in that time, it, I, easy, easy to forget about God. Under brutal slavery, killing the children, working both the men and women to death. It'd be easy. In fact, actually, we get to see a little bit of that even from the very beginning when the plagues start. You have some of the Israelites that push back against Moses and are like, what are you doing, man? We don't want that. We want Egypt. What are you doing? Chapter 13 is really the first chapter where the Lord takes Israel out and begins the process of them getting to know him. To take his nation, to take his people, to take his country, and to share himself with them. Israel, learn about your God. Now again, as we as kind of Westerners and New Testament Christians, we get chapter 13 and we're like, in boring, 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 until about verse 17. Interesting all of a sudden. And that is to a tremendous detriment to us. That we skip the first part in our kind of mental process and how it doesn't inform our everyday life because God's showing us who he is and how he thinks about his people. First in verses 1 and 2 and then skipping to 11 through 16... He begins by explaining that he is a jealous God who has purchased his people. A jealous God who has purchased his people. He starts here, the Lord says to Moses, it's interesting, they take him out into the desert and this is what you're going to say. It's just so intriguing. Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast is mine. Okay, God, 
That's your kind of opening salvo of self-explanation to your people. But it shows so much of who God is and how he interacts with his people. At the very core level of how God interacts with his saints, it is a relationship of you belong to me. You belong to yourself. You don't belong to Egypt. You don't belong to the devil. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to the flesh. You belong to me. Because I purchased you. This was to be a a formative understanding for the Israelites as to how their relationship with the Lord was set up. Look at verse 11 and following how it explains this. When the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites, as he already told you he's going to do, you will continue to set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb. Firstborn male, human, and firstborn animal. Why? Well, verse 14 explains because this is the parallel of what has just happened in Egypt. Something has just happened in Egypt that's going to shape their thinking forever. And what it was, you remember the Passover, is that the Lord sent his destroyer through the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn man and beast of all of the unbelievers. All of the Egyptians, all of the Gentiles, the Lord poured out his wrath upon them. But instead, he gave his people a different mark. A different relationship where they would have a lamb or goat, celebrate a meal together, honor the Lord, eating it with their coats on, staff in hand, bitter herbs, ready to be quick. And they would take the blood of that lamb applied on the doorpost and they would be safe. But it's interesting how God is explaining his relationship to them is to say, look, even though you were saved by that lamb, ultimately you were saved from me, by me. You were saved from my wrath, by me. I purchased you. I bought you from my own wrath. And you belong to me. And so for the rest of time, until Jesus comes, you will redeem the firstborn of everything. Because you belong to me. And it's intriguing what this looks like. You have verse 13 with uh, donkeys or such, where you can do one of two ways. You can either redeem them with a lamb, so your animal gives birth and go, oh, well, it's a, uh, okay, boy, all right, let's go get a lamb. We'll sacrifice it to the Lord as a reminder that this is uh, God's animal that he has purchased for us. Or you break its neck. And you think, well, that's, that's really odd, isn't it? The firstborn donkey, you're like, oh, cool, I have a new animal, kill it. Because it's, again, it's instructing God's people to think about it as a sacrificial act. Look, all of their animals belong to the Lord. He owns them all. He was the one who gave them everything. Remember, that's how they got them. The Egyptians were like, hey, here's all my stuff. Please leave now. It all belongs to God anyways. They're just told to give him a portion. 
Sound familiar? We just did that a little bit ago. They belong to God, all of the animals, and so you either sacrifice the lamb in worship to him or you sacrifice the donkey in worship to him, but both recognize the redeeming ownership nature of God's relationship with his people. Now, thankfully, when it comes to talk about humans, the same arrangement is not enacted. It's not sacrifice a lamb or kill the child. Because the Lord is the Lord of life. He loves babies, loves children. And instead, you have the end of verse 13. You shall redeem. Again, this is one of those things that kind of slips our mind when we read the Bible. And so we have situations like Samuel and Hannah that don't make a great deal of sense to us where she's like, well, hey, if you give me a son, it belongs to you. Well, yes, I know that's exactly what God said when he took them out in the desert. Yes, he absolutely does belong to me. All children belong to me, but firstborn sons particularly are mine. I own them because I didn't kill them. I spared them via a lamb. It will make sense. Samuel will be that guy. It's also interesting. It's part of what's happening when Jesus comes into the temple as a small baby. It's what they're doing is they're redeeming him. It's really just a glorious irony that they're redeeming the redeemer who will redeem them by the end of his life. But what a sweet relationship that very formative, the very foundation of how God interacts with his people is to say, you belong to me. I own you. You're not the God of your own world. You're not the one who gets to determine your own destiny. You don't even get to determine your own ethics. You were bought with a price. And you can hopefully see how for Israel, it's, it's an instructive method to set them up for when Jesus would show up. He's given them this glorious foreshadowing that his people belonged to him and they were purchased at a price. That's why we read that 1 Corinthians passage. It seemed kind of strange maybe to get it. It was all for that, those last two verses. Live in contentment. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord who purchased you from death and hell forever and he purchased you at the highest price. Now, very quickly, I make just two applications for this. Is for some of us, maybe we're inclined to want to be the king of our own world. I mean, we are Americans. Some of us might even be South Carolinians. It is maybe perhaps in our blood to say, you're not the boss of me. Well, I hate to break it to you. He is the boss of you. That is the very foundational nature of who he is and how his relationship is set up with us. He is the boss of us. Please don't fight against that. Embrace it. For those that are resisting his kind governance, please stop. More likely, though, we have more in our midst that are probably a bit discouraged may be discouraged in the fight against sin. Oh. 
Maybe discouraged in the fight against the works of the devil. Maybe it feels like he's kind of whooping your tail at the moment. Maybe he is. The good news is that the Lord owns you. And he will protect his investment. He will protect his people. He shed the blood of his beloved son for you. He's not going to let you go forever. In fact, actually, he's never let you go at all. Your just limited perspective might lead you to believe that. He has redeemed you. He's purchased you. He will not ever let you go. Secondly, in terms of what do we know about God and his relationship with his people here in the text is, well, first we've got to see it's this jealous uh, sweet purchasing relationship verses 3 through 10 are this great reminder of, of the holiness of that relationship then Moses said to the people remember this day when you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place no leavened bread shall be eaten and you're kind of like Moses we kind of got that man like if we've been reading cover to cover of the book we kind of got it because it's not the first time you've told it to us nor the second time you've told it to us. We kind of got it. But the interesting thing is that actually it's not one of those things that we easily remember. To, To be reminded that the Lord himself is holy and he's designed for his people to be holy. Now, this is a a huge kind of contrast for the worldview that the uh, Israelites are going to be bringing to the table here in just a couple of chapters. We're going to see the grumbling shows up in spectacular fashion. And the reason why the grumbling shows up is because Israel has structured their entire existence around being happy, not being holy. They've got the wrong target. They're like, I want to be happy. I want to eat food that I like. I want to have water to drink when I'm thirsty. I, I, I want to have all of these things, God, that are going to make me happy. And they've missed the point. Then target's not happiness. It's, it's holiness. Now, interestingly, when God's people hit holiness, happiness follows. But the end target is holiness, which is why for the third time God's reminding them, look, when you celebrate this, which you're going to do forever, you are have to, you must remember, you're going to remember that you have no leaven in the house. You have no sin in the house. You are called to be a holy and perfect people. Now, Again, you can hopefully see that this is instructive to them because as they try to be perfect and as the laws continue to be explained in the next chapter, I mean, next book or so, is they begin to realize that they don't measure up, that they're not perfect this side of heaven yet, and they begin to see they're a real, real hot mess. And it's setting them up in instruction to look for that Redeemer who would not just purchase them in the future, but would also make them holy. To redeem them and to transform them. And again, I I think this is maybe one of those things that... We don't like to pay attention to the Israelites here, maybe because they're too much like us. 
where our target has subtly and quietly and unintentionally shifted to happiness or comfortability. Really, it's just shifted to me. And the thing I'm shaping my life around, the target that is the goal of my life, has quietly and quickly become making me feel good. Again, we're Americans. It's kind of in our DNA. Some of us might even be South Carolinians. Again, in our DNA. To want to pursue pleasure, to avoid pain, to avoid difficulty, to avoid hurt and heartache. And it's intriguing how this flies in the exact face of the very ministry that Jesus begins his first sermon. What's his first sermon? Blessed are the happy, right? No. Blessed are those who feel good and eat the best and live the best. And No, that's not it, is it? What do my people look like? My people look like those who are poor in spirit. Those that are sad and mourn the right things, not the wrong things. They don't mourn them having their expectations dashed or not living up to what they wanted their life to be. Instead, they mourn. the horrors of a fallen world. Do you realize we have states right now in our country that abort more children than they birth? Do you realize in the last, was it last two or three years, whatever, if you do the math, that more African-American children were killed in the womb than actually made it out of the womb? Please mourn that. Do you realize it's safer on the streets of Baltimore for a young black child than it is in the womb? Mourn that. Mourn the fact that we have sin and though we know it's wrong, we don't stop. Mourn that. Don't mourn how we don't get our own way. Boy, that sounds a lot like Israel, doesn't it? It's setting them up uh, really for an object lesson in the work of the Holy Spirit. I love how the first part, it it highlights the work of Christ. Here you see the work of the Spirit. Look, if you're going to be a holy person, you have to have something different. Because you're not it on your own. You have to have the Spirit of God within you, changing you from the inside out, altering those affections, making the Word of God powerful within you. God changing his people. That's why the way we say our kind of philosophy of ministry here, the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. It's the target. It's it's what we're aiming for. Notice it's not the gathering and making you happy of the saints. It's the perfecting. It's being made ready for the life to come. And you think, man, Michael, that... I agree with those things, you may say. You may say, I know those things, but honestly, I'm just so tired. It's not that I don't want that. I'm just so tired. I'm just so weary. And that's where I love, I love the third section. 
the Lord gives his people a very clear and present reminder that he is with them. He's with them. When Pharaoh let the people of go, God did not lead them by the way. Okay, we've got all of that. They take the bones of Joseph, Joseph as a reminder. By the way, Joseph knew the promises of God. He understood them. He believed them. And now they're being fulfilled. You get to verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. By night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. I love how cut and dry that is and how often I've read that and thought, oh, this neat and tidy, itty bitty little pillar of cloud, this neat and tidy, itty bitty little pillar of fire. And to think about forgetting for just a moment that this is somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three million people and what size of pillar of fire are we talking about to illumine the camp of two and a half million people? How big of a pillar of fire are you going to need for Charlotte to see it? I'm going to suggest it was probably rather large. I'm going to suggest there's also a reason why the Egyptians don't attack their rear guard when the pillar of fire is there. Nope. No. Not going to happen. But what's the ultimate purpose of this is so that the Israelites have a visible, physical reminder. Look, our God is with us. He hasn't just taken us out into difficulty and left us. He's not just said, here, go be my people. I'll catch you later in a thousand years. He's with them to encourage them, to strengthen them, but ultimately so they would know him and love him. And you think, well, maybe oh, they had it easier. They didn't, for the record. We have Jesus and the Spirit in a different way. Uh, they didn't have it easier because the other thing that we, again, not with careful reading ears, we miss is that when the Lord led them out of Egypt, he led them the wrong way. By human standards, you would look at it and go, he made a terrible wrong turn. And by by that I mean, it's not just that he missed the way back to Israel. He missed it by better part of like 800 miles. It would be the equivalent of trying to head to Asheville and accidentally driving to Jacksonville. It's completely the wrong direction. Right? You know where Egypt is. Israel lives in the north of Egypt. You know where Israel is. And the Lord takes them this way. They don't head east. They head south. That is bizarre. Why would he do that? Well, you actually have some of it explained here. It's so that he wouldn't directly take them into warfare. (laughs) They haven't yet realized. It doesn't matter that Israel's incompetent to fight. It doesn't matter that right now they're too weak to fight. That doesn't matter to God, right? They haven't eaten enough over the last, you know, 400 years for them to be a mighty, you know, army. They don't probably even have fully, you know, all of their weapons uh, even forged yet. That, none of that matters to God. What he's doing is actually displaying to them kindness and encouragement to say, look, I could take you into warfare and I could wipe out all of the nations before you. It'd be no problem. But the second I did that, I know you would get discouraged and you'd want to go back to Egypt. Instead, he takes them south. 
You ever wondered why Pharaoh immediately went after them? Because they didn't leave Egypt. They didn't leave the land. It's not like they went all the way up to Israel and he's like, catch you later, bye. They went south so that they're still in his territory. So he immediately follows them to try to annihilate them. That's why we're going to get chapter 14, one of the coolest stories in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorites. But in doing so, what is God doing? Is he showing them over and over and over and over again? Look, I'm with you. Don't worry. I'm with you. Be anxious about nothing. I'm with you. Instead, with prayer and thanksgiving, offer your request to God. I'm with you. And again, you can see how this sets us up for the New Testament so clearly, doesn't it? I'm with you. In fact, I think I remember a name of Jesus about that. We talked about it in Sunday school, didn't we? Emmanuel. God with us. Not apart from us. Not simply for us. He's with us. God is with you. And it's amazing to think about that. The God who is with us would at one point in his ministry among us say, It's better that I go. You think, wow, that's, I mean, that's a, a staggering statement. That the God who is with us would say, it's better that I actually go to heaven. I, I'm not really sure how. Because the God who is with us in human form would then send his spirit not to be with us, but within us. To shape us from the inside out, to change us and to transform us. For those of you that are weak and weary, the Lord is with you. Stay the course. Labor not to grumble and to complain, but just to do what he said. We Capture that with word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. That's the way we kind of capture that idea. But again, what does that mean is those are the ways that the Lord promises to bless his people. And the beautiful thing is we get this with children, right? They grow like crazy. But mom and dad don't usually notice it because we're right next to them every day. It takes us a little while for the growth spurt to become obvious to us. But grandparents who don't see him every day or church members who don't see him every day go, wow, man, he really stretched out, didn't he? Where'd his cheeks go? They disappeared. They stretched no longer. Likewise with you, for those of you that are weak and weary in your faith, just keep serving the Lord. You don't see the growth spur, but God does. You don't see how he's using the word and the prayer and the sacraments and the fellowship of the saints, but God sees it. You don't see how he's tilling your soul for good works to come, but God does. Just stay the course. Paul says it, don't grow weary of doing good. Just stay the course. I want to highlight one more thing, uh, particularly from this text that I think is important that we at least catch and I think would be maybe a bit of a disservice if we didn't note in terms of application. 
All three of these kind of themes highlight the nature of who God is. And it's intriguing that as they first go into the desert and they first are kind of, they're out of the immediate threshold of Egypt here. The Lord explains who he is and then it immediately explains, please instruct the children. Did you catch that? Verses 3, 4, 5, you have the no leaven in your house, no leaven, no leaven, no leaven. Verse 8, why? So you can tell your son on that day. So you may instruct the next generation. Well, I mean, that's one off. I guess that's kind of a, oh, wait, no, wait, yep. mm -hmm. We had that in verse 14 in the next one too, didn't we? And when your time comes, your son asks, what does this mean? So that we can pass the faith on to the children. Do you know the number one way to become a Christian? Just statistically, the best way to become a Christian? Be born in a Christian home. The Lord honors His covenant. He loves children. He loves your children. Be born in a Christian home. I would say, if nothing else... Young and old in this church and everyone in between, can we please spend our labors passing this on to the next generation? Can we please make sure that the children of the church hear of the God who is redeemed, the God who is holy, and the God who is there with them? Because... It's quite likely, I mean, I'd love for the Lord Jesus to come back this week. It's quite likely, if he does not, all of us adults in the room at one point will perish. And the church will be in the hands of the little ones that are either sitting in the seats next to us or not yet born. Let's make sure we spend our efforts so they know the God who has revealed himself. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you. That you've redeemed us from the grave, we honor you. That you make us holy in the Spirit, we honor you. That you are with us. We honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.